Hello and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Diego Silva. Before introducing our guests, I want to acknowledge that we're recording on the unceded territory of the Gadigal people of the Enora Nation. This is and will continue to be Aboriginal land. I want to pay my respects to those who have and continue to care for country. So today I'm joined by Dr. Gabe Watts to discuss uh, his paper that he's co-written with Professor Ainsley Newson. Is there a duty to routinely reinterpret genomic variant classifications? Gabe, welcome. Thanks, Diego. Okay, so just to begin, I was wondering if you could provide a quick summary of your paper. I think in, in summary, there are two points. One is that genomic uh, data has what we call diagnostic durability, which is to say that compared to other diagnostic tests, you can get a, a valid diagnosis out of it for almost indefinitely. There are some you know, small cases where you might get changes, but more or less you don't need to retest a patient to still get a valid diagnosis. So compared to, say, an X-ray, where you take the X-ray, and maybe in a few months you'll need to take another X-ray in order to uh, get a, a valid diagnosis from that. Basically, you can't get a valid diagnosis from your old one, whereas genomic data, you can do it indefinitely because it doesn't change. So that's the first point. And the second point would be that um, classifications for genomic variants, which is to say there's a classification system that ranges from pathogenic, likely, pa likely pathogenic, uh, variants of uncertain significance, and then there's likely benign and benign. Uh, that's the basic classification system. And classif those classifications for genomic variants uh, often change and in quite short periods of time. So you've got data that you can go back to almost indefinitely and you've got classifications as to do with pathogenicity of variants that changes and so that raises ethical questions about should you go back to the data? How often? What responsibilities do you have as a service who administers tests that produce data that we don't know much about that can change very often but we can go back again Thing, things like that. That's the, that's the core of the issue. So what are some of those ethical issues um, that you're referring to? So what are the ethical challenges? And I guess also, what are some of the conclusions that you draw? Well, the key, the key challenges that we look at um, broadly concern what would be called uh, reanalysis. So going back to uh, genomic data that you have and analyzing it again is reanalysis. Uh, and reanalysis has a number of different elements, and one of those elements is reinterpretation of the variant classifications. And the ethical issue is if you, well, this is, this is brought up in a paper by Applebaum et al., which is what we're um, mainly responding to, is they, they claimed that by virtue of providing a test that is quite likely to produce information which we are not certain about whether it's pathogenic or not now, but are likely enough to be so in the future, does providing that test bring a responsibility to actively reanalyze the data? So that's one, well actually their point is actively reinterpret the data, and the uh, key point there is that reanalysis is good. It brings new, uh, it has what we call, uh, increases diagnostic yield. The more you do it, the more diagnoses you get. Uh, but it's not feasible. 
It's technically very difficult, and we simply don't have the workforce to do it. It would take years and years and years uh, without some sort of assistance from some sort of breakthrough from AI. It, wouldn't, it just won't happen. Reanalyzing genomic data increases diagnostic yield. It, it, it brings the more you do it, the more diagnoses you get. The problem is that it's not feasible. We simply don't have the workforce, but there are many other reasons as well. Um, and then the idea within that is that, well, reinterpretation, you're not looking into everyone's data. You're looking into these uh, classifications. So maybe by just seeing if certain classifications have been changed over time, you'll get some new diagnoses. And it is a, a fairly, it brings about, don't, I mean, don't quote me, but it's something in the order, it's it's in the order of 20%, between 20 and 30, I forget exactly what. Um, and that's significant enough to think, hey, maybe even though reanalysis isn't feasible to do regularly, we could reinterpret the classifications and then find ways to communicate any changes with patients. And this may well be something that we are ethically obligated to do on the basis of providing such a test. And so in terms of that sort of question whether there is that obligation, what is your response? Is, is there an obligation to, to retest? Well, one of the reasons why we like this as an issue is because I think that intuitions can go both ways relatively easily. We did speak with uh, people like clinical genomicists to get a picture of things. And one way you could see is that, well, we administer these tests that... One of, I remember someone saying that um, there's no other diagnostic tests that we administer that we know so little about. <laughs> and, and yet we give a test like this. And so insofar as we do that, yes, I feel an obligation to my patients in order to continue to reanalyze or reinterpret the data or do anything, basically, to uh, eventually... to to give us the best chances of getting a diagnosis. And if that is looking at it every six months, so be it. But then the other side of the equation is, is that, well, if we really don't understand this technology and if the fact that we are providing patients with information that is ultimately uncertain, well, not ultimately uncertain, uncertain at the time, but may well be... Uh, we may well have further knowledge, diagnostic knowledge about it in the future. Well, if this is such a problem, maybe we shouldn't be giving them the test. Now, I don't think you've got to find basically a middle ground between those two things because doctors will say, no, 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 this is the best test we have. We have to give it to them. I say, yes. Um, but does that imply that you have to, therefore, Keeping, uh, keep on reanalyzing or reinterpreting the variant classifications in order to get a diagnosis or give yourself the best chances? Our answer is ultimately a mixed one, but no, there's no general obligation. And we analyze three, uh, well, we analyze three sources which may give an, eth an ethical obligation. We, um, and so one of them is the, an ongoing duty of care, pay, you know, doctors or medical professionals have ongoing duty of cares to their patients. Um, Another one is what we call systemic error risk. And the last one is diagnostic equity. So we look at this situation through these three frames. Um, and we argue that insofar as ongoing duties of care are concerned, no, there's no general requirement that you continuously or regularly 
or ac actively and regularly reinterpret genomic variant classifications. However, in certain cases, there are. Um, but it had been argued by others that there was this general duty. So essentially we're saying, no, it's not quite like that. There are specific cases. Uh, otherwise, there are, there are uh, times when simply the kind of massive distributed effort that is required for classifying genomic variants creates risks of error which ought to be mitigated against through regular reinterpretation. That's a time when you get it, when, when you should, um, or where we saw an ethical obligation arise. And then the last one was where, um, okay, so these tests will are likely enough to produce uncertain information simply because we don't know. They are so comprehensive and we don't know that much comparatively or relatively about the human genome at the moment. Um, so that's an intrinsic reason why it would uh, produce uncertain information. But there are, for certain communities, um, there are uh, extrinsic factors like historical underrepresentation uh, and which can occur for very many various reasons. But in that, in those cases, we uh, suggest that the diagnostic durability, the fact that you can keep on going back to data, the it has the virtue of it is that you can keep on reanalyzing small data sets as they get added to. But basically, you can uh, mitigate the negative impact of extrinsic limitations on your data set through regularly reinterpreting the data because of its diagnostic durability, then we also see a moral obligation arise to do so. So, yeah, look, look, this is a really interesting topic, I think in part because it's not something that is sort of front and center, I think, for many people thinking about um, sort of bioethics in, in general. Like, like you said, there's a, there's been some stuff written about this, but this is sort of isn't the sort of the regular stuff that we usually think about. So I'm wondering, how did this paper come about? What was some of the motivation behind this paper and, and I guess the, the broader project perhaps? I think it is something that clinical genomicists think about quite regularly. Um, they're seeing patients all the time. They're quite aware of the limitations of the tools that they're using, and they want to help their patients as best they can. And so to them, and I think to, to us as well, it's not, it's not like we're separating off deliberately, but you think, well, of all the options that you have, reinterpreting the variant classifications with a, you know, actively at periods of regularity, that could seem to be a good thing. Where bioethicists come in is they interrogate the language of duties in such situations and say, I think, as I said, clinical geneticists do think about this a lot, but you can find a shift to a language of duty and obligation that goes very fast. And I think the way uh, uh, Professor Newson and I saw it was it was the job of bioethicists to come in and provide some conceptual analysis of the duties that arise by breaking up all the possible situations and then suggesting some of the grounds that you might have for doing this and then uh, providing reasons for and against. Ultimately, what motivates it is the fact that genomics will become mainstream and so we need answers to questions about how to handle the voluminous amounts of data that we have. Um, within the practical limits that are imposed. And so that's, that's the motivation for a project like this. So you mentioned 
the motivation, I guess, from from your perspective, from Ainsley's perspective, in terms of, you know, geneticists are using this information. There's a quick sort of move towards speaking about, I have this obligation, I have this duty. This is what you guys do is sort of bread and butters to think about exactly these issues. I'm wondering from your perspective, does it matter whether clinicians or patients believe that this sort of genetic testing, this next generation sequencing, will be retested in the future in terms of establishing a general duty to retest in the future? So I guess I'm, I'm wondering to what extent does their um, intention and motivation factor in your thinking? I think one issue there that I would think about is whether the fact that it's inspected, expected by patients and that uh, practitioners believe they ought to do it creates a duty of care. I think that... Uh, one of the contributions of bioethics to areas like this is to be precise about what obligations can be rationally defended to, despite what people want. Another way to address a question like this is to say, well, the system as we have it isn't, insofar as problems like this even arise, um, something's going wrong. And what we need to do is we need to work from a system level down to ensure that uh, we are doing everything in our power to make sure that the pipelines through which we provide people with access to genomic diagnostic tools and genomic diagnoses are uh, ethically sound, and one of the components of them being ethically sound will be that we have procedures in place in order to reinterpret. I think that a lot of clinical genomics practitioners would support that sort of view, and I think it is ultimately uh, how it's my belief that it's how it ought to go. Uh, I think, in terms of what we've argued, we've argued for some, we've argued from within the position of how things are. Within the position of how things are, some of the duties that are being appealed to are arguably overstated. But in terms of providing the best care, then I think arguments for broad change, but are legitimate. But I think that ultimately it's going to come down to, I'll put it this way, in terms of patient desires for kind of continuing reanalysis to the extent that they're there. They're, that's something you should critically interrogate as well. Mm. And practitioner beliefs that um, they are obligated to do so. Feasibility is the issue, you know. Until something radically changes about whether it becomes feasible or not to do, patient desires and practitioners' felt obligations, the rubber has to hit the road somewhere, and the road is how much can we possibly do? And so I think that those considerations are important. Um, one of the reasons why reinterpretation of variants rather than reanalysis on the whole becomes the issue is because it's seen to be more feasible. Um, but even within that, we argue that, look, it's not as general as you think. So I guess maybe the actual uh, conclusion is, regardless of what patients want and regardless of what the felt obligations are, uh, there are grounds for thinking that the um, kind of ethical duties, any ethical duties in the situation only extend so far. So then am I, am I right in thinking that if the issue of feasibility is resolved, so, you know, technology, computing technology XYZ comes up in 10 years' time, um, then is there an obligation to just say, yep, well, now we have the capability, um, you know, 
quantum computing. I don't know. I'm saying things I don't actually know what the, the terms they mean. But, you know, they, people say quantum computing is powerful. So we'll go with that. You know, at some point in the future, that's ubiquitous. We can then reinterpret everything. Therefore, we ought to reinterpret everything or there is a duty to reinterpret everything. Is that still an argument too far? I mean, one thing I'm wary of is that uh, it's you always throw it out and say, well, without, without some sort of breakthrough in the technologies that we use in diagnostics, then we're going to run up against feasibility constraints, and within those feasibility constraints, we argue for X, Y, Z. But say they were different, well, then that's something to think about in the future. Um, but, I mean, if you were to kind of posit a counterfactual situation in which uh, you... and we'd have to you know, specify it more precisely than I'm about to now, but in which you could rely on machines to do a lot of the work and the workload became very, very low, then it is entirely one of the benefits of genomic data that you can just keep on going back to it. Like, it's amazing, right? It's a, it's, you should still question the framework that looks at it as like a resource to be mined, right? But... You can keep on going back to it, and if you, on the supposition that that is uh, doesn't cost very much and doesn't use up uh, significant resources, then why not? It's one of the, as, but the, the the questions then there are still questions about recontacting patients, informed consent, which we set to the side in this paper, but they absolutely come up, and then there are issues around. You know, for for say say you do have a diagnosis that's you've 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 had a diagnosis and then the uh, classification changes and it gets it's like oh no we no longer think that's pathogenic we're actually not really sure what it means that's quite distressing for a mm-hmm. patient that's you know has gone through that change and it's distressing for the clinicians who have to or the whichever medical professional is in charge of recontenting that person and if you were routinely reinterpreting your variants, you'd get cases like that would skyrocket. And so there are other ethical concerns that you would have to think of down the track. But if the, if the question is kept to, well, you can use machines in order to, to do this stuff regularly, then yes, it should. And maybe that is part of the, the situation where we getting the pipelines as good as possible is the way that we ought to go. But even... Um, if that were the case, the ethical issues will just pop up somewhere else. There's, you know, in terms of the distress, there'll be distress somewhere that you've got to think about. Right. So I think what's interesting about that is, I guess, the, the idea that the, the paper is currently constituted has a lot to do with feasibility and sort of what do you do in the context of feasibility and scarcity. But what I think is interesting is even if you resolve the question of technological feasibility, obviously you're going to have the, all these other sort of other ethical questions come up or sort of come to the fore at the, at the, at the very least then? Uh, I think that's absolutely correct. And um, as we said at the beginning, one of the reasons for uh, looking at this issue is that the fact that genomic data has diagnostic durability, that you can get a valid diagnosis out of it almost in perpetuity, but even beyond the life of the person who you got it from. It can help their relatives, it can help all sorts of other people. It's phenomenal. Like, it's an amazing property that is likely, that brings up novel ethical issues. And it is, you know, like the metaphorical whack-a-mole. You can knock one down, but another one will come right. up because it is genuinely novel. And that is, that is a reason for bioethicists to be there. 
right? Um, it's it's interesting in that regard, just of itself, you know, and also for other reasons. So, Gabe, I'm just wondering what you're working on right now. What can we expect uh, to read of yours in uh, the near future? Um, Ainsley and I have been looking at the notion of personal utility within. Um, well, within the, the assessment of healthcare technologies, but um, mainly for genomic diagnostics again. Um, and it's very similar to the, the, the basic pattern described where certain uh, issues arise in clinical practice for genomicists and then certain ethically loaded language gets uh, used and extended very quickly. And the way that I mean, I presume to speak for Ainsley on this point, but I'll speak just for myself. The way I see the work that we do is just plain old conceptual analysis, be clear about concepts in play, uh, and then normative analysis. There's, I just feel that this is a situation where I, I think it's boring, but I also think it's necessary. I mean, I say boring in the sense that I, I still like doing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think... I think um, I'll put it this way. I think it's necessary work in the sense of it's, it's an area where language and norms can become muddled very quickly and there is value in precisifying and clarifying, uh, precisifying concepts and clarifying demands. And so that's what we try and do with various areas of uh, like clinical genomics in particular. Uh, genomic diagnostics, because these things not only affect a lot of people's lives, but have the potential to. And um, clarity around concepts and normative demands is highly useful for policymakers, but, and we'll rephrase from before, highly tedious to produce. But if you have, you know, a disposition towards tedium and a head for it, then that's fine. I like the way you put that. The other thing it reminds me of, um, you know, it said, you know, it's good for policymakers that we do this work. I, I think part of the trick is trying to convince them that they need this work done in the first place. But um, look, I want to thank Gabe for taking the time uh, to be with us today. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find the paper we discussed linked to the episode's notes along with the transcript of our conversation. SheePod is produced by She Network and edited by Regina Botros. You can find our other podcast episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, goodbye.